There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. The Replacements never became superstars, but few bands have inspired such a deep personal connection with their fans. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We discuss the music and legacy of The Replacements with biographer Bob Mayer. Plus, we review the new album from Solange and explore the sample behind Hotline Bling. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, Jim, no doubt, The Replacements, one of the most important bands in our lives, For sure. uh, both as journalists and as fans. 80s Underground helped define it, 79 through 91, one of the most important bands in the world to the fans who loved them during that era. No Didn't big, sell any records. No, no big hits, but a huge influence on uh, bands that came after. In that alternative rock era, a lot of bands influenced by The Replacements. Reunited in 2012, and the proof was there. The crowds that came out to see them were exponentially larger than the crowds that saw them in their original heyday. The Mats, as fans always called them, uh, never took themselves seriously. In fact, you know, famous for shooting themselves in the foot, drinking, self-destruction. That's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. People also know that Paul Westerberg is one of the most admired songwriters uh, by everyone who's followed, people who really are not afraid to wear their heart on their sleeve, to talk deeply about serious issues, even in, in as silly a thing as rock and roll. The whole story, finally, after a decade of work, by journalist Bob Mayer has come out in this book, which is a real incredible feat, Trouble Boys, the true story of the replacements. And uh, having Bob on the show gives us another excuse to look at this incredible career. Bob, thanks so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me, guys. It's good to talk to both of you again. The 10 years you put into this book, it is really the story of the replacements, but also the story of a uniquely American rock band, the story of an era in rock history, the story of the power of art to help people escape. Yeah, I did. Once I realized the the weight of the story, the gravity of it, the depth and the scope, it, it felt like this was an opportunity to tell a, a, both a bigger and a smaller story, um, a story of an era in, in rock music, in the music business, in the way bands got together and took shape, and, and also a, a smaller story in terms of the lives, the intimate details of this group of people's lives. Uh, and the the tragedies and and the triumphs of, of of those lives. So it became much more than a story of of just a rock band. I think. I hope. Who were the four guys in the Replacements, and how did they end up making music together? It's really the Replacements were kind of a merger of a band, a pre-existing band called Dog Breath, which featured uh, Bob Stinson, his uh, younger brother Tommy Stinson, and Chris Mars, uh, Bob on guitar, Tommy on bass, Chris on drums. And a fellow by the name of Paul Westerberg, who at that point was uh, kicking around uh, some South Minneapolis bands, mostly uh, playing lead guitar and, and working as a janitor uh, and doing that only so he could pay for his guitar and amp. But uh, <laughs> um, 
And in the fall of 1979, they hooked up sort of uh, both by accident and I guess by the hand of fate. Paul was walking back from his janitor job. And as he was walking back home, he heard this volume, this sound, this thing that sort of uh, enraptured him. And as he drew closer to this basement, he heard this incredible thunder coming out of the basement. Unbeknownst to him, that was Dog Breath, the Stinson Brothers and Chris Mars playing. A couple months later, a mutual friend insisted that Paul come over and check out his friend Chris's band. Uh, and lo and behold, they pull up, and uh, Paul pulls up and sees this band. It sounds like the stuff out of a movie, but it turns out, you know, it, it was true. In fact, uh, he'd kind of been hearing them for months on his walk, wondering, who is this mm. band? I'd sure like to join <laughs> join them. And, and it turns out it uh, it was the band, I guess, he was he was made for and, and that they were made for each other. Stay right there. So to be clear, uh, you know, Paul joined an existing band. It was really Bob's band, right? In a sense, yeah. I mean, Dog Breath wasn't a band so much that was playing out. They were really just kind of a neighborhood band, a basement band. Occasionally they would play, uh, you know, parties and, and local house things, uh, but hadn't really gotten on a stage. Paul had sort of been on the stage a little bit, so it really was kind of Paul joining this existing group that really wasn't doing anything. So I think they found a kind of... Uh, unified ambition, certainly Bob and Paul did, in, in wanting to get out of the basement and get on a real stage. Well, who, who were those Stinson brothers, Bob, and, and how had they started making music? They were all Minnesotans. Everybody in the band was native to Minnesota. Bob, though, was the product ultimately of some abuse and, and a very difficult childhood uh, at the hands of essentially the person who was his stepfather and Tommy's father. And so the first decade of his life was really, um, he was victim of that. He got sent into the state juvenile system, juvenile jails, group homes, that kind of thing, and really began to sort of suffer the effects of the abuse, I think, that he had experienced as a child, uh, which was both sexual, physical, mental. And in really trying to reconnect with the world, he found the way to do that was through music. He picked up the guitar and began practicing obsessively, uh, learning obsessively, uh, as I say, in juvenile jails and group homes. And then when he finally got out at the age of 17, almost 18, and was released back to his family, he had an ambition, and that was to start a band. And his younger brother Tommy was uh, sort of a wayward child at that point, getting into trouble, had been arrested a few times for shoplifting, and was very much headed down the same path. And Bob kind of scooped him, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, and said, here, you're going to learn how to play bass. And really, that's how the, the, the Stinson brothers began making music. So no exaggeration to say music saved their lives. It, it is not an exaggeration at all. And, you know, I asked Tommy Stinson a number of times, do you ever think about what your fate would have been if, if not for, for Bob sort of rescuing you and putting the bass in your hands? And he said, you know, it was petty theft. It would have been grand larceny, grand theft, and then who knows, you know, murder. And it certainly would have meant a life in jail. And as, as the book uh, first uh, section details there, the title is Jail, Death, or Janitor. And that was the answer that Westerberg gave when he was asked, you know, what would any of your fates have been if not for the replacements, jail, death, or janitor? And I think it was particularly true in the Stinson's case.
high school dropouts, um, came from middle or lower middle class uh, environments where there wasn't a whole lot of ambition. You were kind of probably going to do what your dad did if you were lucky. You'd be a sort of uh, a laborer, a worker, a lifer, working a government job. And I don't think any of them wanted that. And I don't think any of them were really cut out or suited for regular uh, day job employment as it would turn out. But I think what gave them a power was their limitations musically in terms of their personality. They found each other and clicked in a way, as Paul says in the book, we understood each other in ways that most guys didn't. And I think that's why they came together so quickly. And from the moment that Paul joined the band, within a couple months, they went from having one or two songs to having 20, 30, 40 songs and really having coalesced as a band and having found this sound together. So the big thread in your book, Bob, is that this band is a refuge for these trouble boys, as the book is titled. Right. And at the same time, you've also got this almost subconscious level of, you know, screwing things up, Mm. getting the opportunities, screwing them up. I think it began with Westerberg. I think Westerberg, if you come to know him, he has a degree of, as I speculate in the book, oppositional defiance syndrome, where he just, if you say black, he says white. You know, he he had, I think, problems with authority. And I think if you look at their backgrounds, they all kind of had problems with authority, um, certainly Stinson's. And, and, and even Chris Mars, in his own quiet way, was a very chaotic sort of force and presence, or could be if he chose to. And so I think, you know, that was another thing that bonded them and propelled them in the way that they performed and the way they acted and in nightclubs, on the road, and ultimately in record company offices and recording studios. And that seemed to be in place from uh, the very start. Like, what were those first shows like when these guys started playing together? Well, it's interesting for a band that would really make its reputation as drinkers, their first couple shows or two of the first three came in kind of sober houses and sober dances uh, for teens. Um, You know, Minnesota being the land of 10,000 lakes is also the land of 10,000 rehab centers. In the 70s, I think any kid that got uh, in trouble, they would immediately put them in rehab. Out of that, there were, you know, a lot of teens who were, who were sober and they needed entertainment. And so there was a kind of little circuit of uh, sober dances and sober houses that they would play. And as it happened, the replacements, the, the first couple gigs they played, the first one, which they played as the impediments at a place in St. Paul called Team House, which was a sober, chemical-free uh, atmosphere. They got busted in the parking lot for drinking in between sets. And, and the guy <laughs> read them the riot act and said, you'll never play in this town again. Hence the name change from the impediments to the replacements. And then their kind of quote-unquote breakthrough gig, which was for Peter Jesperson, the man who would discover them and sign them to Twin Tone, was at a a place called the Bataclan, again, a kind of chemical-free sober performance space. And they got caught drinking before the show and never played the gig. They got kicked out before that one. So uh, that was, you know, the scene that that Peter walked into is this band uh, having been booted from the gig before they could play a note. Jesperson does eventually get to see the band play, uh, and he becomes their manager, their champion. Jesperson gets them signed to Twin Tone Records. It's a local, independent uh, label, and they put out Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, and Stink in 1981 and 82. Just saying those titles makes me smile. It encompasses everything you need to know about the replacements in that era. How was the band developing as a live band? Because as they begin to cross the country uh, playing behind these records, people are buzzing about them. 
I think they evolved into a very tight band because you're talking about an era of American punk and hardcore punk where people wanted their songs fast and tightened together. And although the replacements could be meandering in between songs, uh, tuning up the first couple years, if you listen to them in 81, 82, really into 83, they were a really tight combo. And I think it was that tightness that allowed them later on to get as loose as they did. Yeah, well, I never forget the first time I saw them circa Sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash. Mm. Um, they were finished, and they'd had enough, and there were a lot of hardcore kids with mohawks. But uh, Paul was not done. Uh, <laughs> the other guys went off, went to the bar, and Paul sat behind the drums, and he pulled some kids with mohawks out of the audience, and they proceeded to play Louie Louie for <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> Badly, horribly. <laughs> but what it said to me is, here's this band named The Replacements, uh, was yet another reminder, you can do this. Right. Anybody can do this. You can be us. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, the replacements get kind of lumped into that sort of DIY American indie era. And I think in some ways they were very opposite of that. None of them drove. They didn't have driver's license, so they couldn't get to the gigs. That's about as un-DIY as you can get. But (laughs) where I think they do kind of fit into the spirit of that time is about the separation of the band, the artist, and the audience. They would pull people on stage. They would switch instruments. There was this kind of free-flowing quality to who they were and the music they played and, and the atmosphere they created in those shows where I think it made people feel like, yeah, I could do that. But more, I think it gave the audience a really deep connection to the band from, from the get-go. And I think that's why, partly, why they have continued to sort of remain in people's hearts and minds for so long is because they were closer, I think, to their audience than a lot of bands you know, the big part of this band, too, Bob, why we're even talking about them today, I think, is because of, uh, you know, Westerberg's songs, but also Absolutely. how they were presented by mm-hmm. this band. The band was a key component of the creative thing. You really draw out the essential tension between what Westerberg was trying to write and what the band wanted to play. And there was a sense of, you know, we don't want any ballads, we don't want any slow ones, you know, don't get sentimental on us, Paul. He was fighting against all these kind of tensions within the band about what kind of music they wanted to play, what they would allow him to write. It was almost like he had to sneak in a song like Johnny's Gonna Die early sure. on, something that was a little bit more sensitive. Johnny always needs more than he takes Forgets a couple chords, forgets a couple breaks And everybody tells me that Johnny is hot Johnny needs something, but he ain't got And Johnny's gonna Well, and that was the era, too. You know, I think Paul deserves a fair amount of credit because coming out of that early punk and hardcore, American hardcore era, we're talking, you know, 80 to 82, uh, sort of expression of feeling and emotion and sentiment the way Westerberg would become a master of was fairly verboten. So I think he he, that evolved. You know, you've got Johnny's going to die on one record on on the first record. You've got Go on the second record. And then you get within your reach on Hootenanny. Then it's clear that, wow, these songs are just as powerful as the, the dumb, fun rockers. Grow without so much Can die without Live without your touch I die within your I think 
Jesperson, their manager, deserves a lot of credit because early on, Paul was as early as he was writing all the punk and rock and hardcore songs on Sorry Ma and Stink, he was quietly slipping Jesperson these tapes of these ballads and, and things. And, you know, maybe another manager, another person wouldn't have encouraged that side of him, but Peter did. And I think that was important in, in Westerberg's evolution and, and the evolution of the band ultimately. You can really hear this incredible dichotomy on Let It Be, which comes out in 1984. We did a classic album dissection of this record once, if you can uh, go back and listen to it on soundopinions.org. But the thing that always strikes both both Greg and me is this record can go from a goofy Kiss cover or Tommy Gets His Tonsils Out to Answering Machine or Unsatisfied, these incredible soulful songs about bearing your heart. You know, that is that is part of what made The Replacements great, I think. You know, you, you, if you're lucky, a great band will get you in the head and the heart or the heart or the gut, but very few bands touch you in the head, heart, and gut all three places. And The Replacements had <laughs> the ability to... Maybe also the crotch at times. Yeah, yeah, and the crotch, too. You know, it, it, but I, I think it's rare that you get a band that has the, the sort of classic rock and roll qualities, that has the great songs and songwriters and, and writerly aspect to it, and and and. Has has a kind of sense of humor as well. I think it's rare, almost non-existence, for a band to sort of tick off all those boxes. And and I think that, in a way, is what makes The Replacements so special. In addition to the fact that I think what fans relate to is that they know they're getting a pure, real experience. I think The Replacements were who they were 100% of the time, on stage, off, in their songs, in record company offices, (laughs) wherever it might have been. Um, and I think people instinctively understood that, that, look, these guys aren't putting on a mask. They're not putting on an act. It's not a, a show that they sort of turn or a light switch they turn on and off. It's like, this is who they are. This is what they are. And I think people are attracted to that, you know, realness, for, for lack of a better term. But uh, I think that's the thing that really shines through with the replacements even 25 years after their career in the main is over. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Replacements biographer Bob Mayer, picking up with the band's move to a major label, and later a review of the new album from Solange and a look at the soul sample driving a Drake hit. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Hey, podcast listeners, sign up for the Sound Opinions newsletter, and every week you'll get a preview of the show and a heads up about our upcoming events. Go to soundopinions.org for more info. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim Dirigatis, and today we're joined by Bob Mayer, author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. We talked a little bit about the band's infamously volatile live shows. I mean, the drunkenness, the sloppiness, the improvised covers in the middle of the set. Uh, and that seemed to really become what the band was known for around the time Let It Be was released in 1984. Yeah, you know, I mean, we can't underscore enough because many people didn't see them live on the first go-around. The first night would be the greatest rock and roll show you ever saw. These heartbreaking songs, this incredible, raucous sound. Right? And the next night, they'd had too much drink, too much drugs, too much of each other. It's scary. It's belligerent. It's sloppy. You feel ripped off. You can't take your eyes off it because you don't know what's going to happen next. It's always real, <laughs> but it's not fun necessarily. Well, that was the funny thing about it is uh, after a certain period, they kind of almost developed their, an, an audience kind of like the Deadheads where people would follow them around show to show regionally or certainly in certain parts of the country because you were never guaranteed to go to any one show and have it be a good show. You might have to go to two or three to really mm-hmm. get, the, yeah. get, get the good one. But within those three shows, you might get a, a whole mix of experiences and, and, and run the gamut of emotions from uh, feeling satisfied to feeling ripped off to feeling, uh, I don't know, you know, frightened, scared, <laughs> enjoying well, it. Well, you did. Th- th- there started to be this distasteful element as with an artist like Cat Power or Daniel Johnson, uh, where certain people showed up hoping that chaos would happen tonight and that the, the boys would hurt themselves. Yeah, and it's funny. You look at it now in an era of, of Twitter and social media and, and the Internet, it's it's almost impossible to think of the replacements in a way existing in that world because you wonder if they would have made it past the – if club owners would have had them past the first tour. On the Let It Be tour, they were playing these covers, heavy, crazy sets. That was the first time, you know, fall of 83 into 84 where they really kind of developed that reputation of the, the drunken mats. And then by 85 and even into 86 and 87, people were still coming to see this thing that had really happened a couple years before. And some nights they would oblige the audience and some nights they wouldn't. But it's it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. They were a band that's, that's wrapped up in so much romance and myth. And I don't think rock and roll bands, certainly in this day and age, you can be wrapped up in myth when, you know, there's video and set lists and everything instantaneously of everything you do. And so yeah. part of what their strength was, was this uncertainty, this risk you were taking as a as a patron as a ticket buyer to come to this show what am i going to get who are these guys and what are they going to give me on any given night the the replacement's craziness the, those antics don't let up even when they move to a major label seymour stein in 1985 signs the group to sire sire is of course part of warner brothers uh now stein is 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 uh taking a chance on this band and that's saying something for a guy who worked with both madonna and the ramones and uh they reward him instantly by, uh, you know, going on Saturday Night Live and botching it thoroughly. Right. And that comes in 1986. They've just released their their major label debut, Tim. And they get the call last minute, of course, to be perfectly suited to, for the task to be replacements for another act that's dropped out on Saturday Night Live. And, and they did the show. And I think if you look back on the performance now, certainly the first song, Bastards of Young, it's a, it's a towering kind of rock and roll moment on television, particularly in the heart of the big 80s when you didn't see bands as loud or ragged or, or as unpolished as that. As real. As real. We are the 
during the song, Paul sort of let go of, let's say, an epitaph, uh, somewhat off mic, but uh, enough to sort of raise uh, Lauren Michaels' hackles, who read the Mariah Act backstage. You know, it, it was a real moment, a real television moment, and, and a real moment that kind of defined the band. Uh, for good, in, in some ways, it certainly defined their legend in a positive way, but for bad in terms of their career and how, you know, the power brokers, the, the gatekeepers of the industry would view them as, as a risk more than anything else. And the fact that they were on a major label uh, is it, just mind-boggling when you read some of the details of sure. their burning per diems. Paul and Tommy Stinson are burning cash in front of people just to get a rise out of them, like d- well, on a know, daily basis. To their credit, the, the way Paul looked at it was, I, you know, it's a skewed replacements logic. He said, you know, it's not like we had a lot of money to burn. And they didn't. They were scraping by the whole time, even when they were on the major labels. And we still burned it, and it was like, I don't have any money, but I have you, meaning Tommy, and he has me, and we'll get by somehow. And so even their most ritualistic sort of negative and destructive acts in their own minds were a kind of uh, bonding exercise, you <laughs> yeah. know? It was, it was a part of their this weird brotherhood that, that shifted. And, and really, the book is ultimately about these, is, is about families and brotherhoods, you know? It's about the families of origins uh, we come from, and, and, and in the replacements case, these kind of fractured families of origins. And it's about making these new families with the band and with the guys in the band, and how we kind of, uh, in some ways, try and find solutions or try and find alternatives but maybe in some ways ends up end up kind of repeating our, our lives and our life journey and you know I think a lot of the the, the the things that the replacements did or or didn't do in the course of their career you know it, like I say you can draw a line straight back to to, to their earliest years Spend a lot of time chronicling uh, the recordings of each of the records. It seems like the joy started to creep out uh, once they went to Warner Brothers. They, they didn't have as much fun in the studio. Well, part of that was, you know, with the replacements, every record was a kind of reaction to the last record or the current circumstance they were in, and a lot of it became personnel stuff. I mean, Bob, the situation with Bob in terms of his membership in the band and his own personal problems sort of cropping up came really came about during the making of Tim, and he's... He's on that in a sense, but he wasn't a part of that process. And then, you know, each record is almost a different lineup of the, la- the last four records, if you mm. really look at it. Mm. And you could sort of say that the, the lack of stability or the kind of internal turmoil also kind of dictated whether there were records were fun or not fun. But I, I do think the material on a lot of those records really does stand up. I think if you look at something like Tim, that's where you have your kind of classic mid-period Westerberg, the standards, you know, Left of the Dial, Bastards of Young, uh, Little Mascara, uh, you know, uh, Here Comes a Regular, that kind of stuff. Everybody wants to be special here They call your name out loud and
Bob Stinson seemed to be the most troubled member of the band, at least outwardly. He's the one that's always viewed as kind of the victim, uh, the guy that got lost, the guy who eventually died. What, what exactly was up with Bob Stinson? Why wasn't he able to hang in there uh, through the duration of this band that he founded? Well, I think it was about so much more. I mean, the, the, Bob's situation was far more complex than, than most people realize, maybe even people in the band and, and around the band. Um, he was someone who was, as I say, suffering some very serious traumas from his childhood that he never really got over and that in many ways uh, he dealt with uh, through drink and, and drugs. And I think as the replacement success grew, as the pressures became more, and in a way as the focus of the band went away from the group and more towards Paul and Paul and Tommy, I think he felt sort of isolated and marginalized. And that triggered a lot of the the feelings that he had uh, having gone through a very difficult and traumatic childhood and teenage years. And so I think, you know, Bob's problems were bigger than the replacements. They just happened to sort of play out during the life of the replacements, particularly at the point where they were at their most uh, visible, you know, uh, 85, 86, when he was essentially fired from the band. Really, he never got the help that he needed um, in terms of his mental health, in terms of his, uh, you know, the byproducts of his mental health, which were his his drinking and, and his drug use. But of course, the ultimate tragedy is he died way too young at the age of 35. And and it wasn't really from an overdose or, or, or anything. His, his basically expired of natural causes. But, you know, 35 to die of natural causes, he, he had put himself and had been through a lot um, emotionally and physically during those 35 years. great mystery of the replacements bob is uh you know they get signed to warner brothers and the entire music world if not the world at large but people in the know you know writers djs tastemakers love this band they feel a special connection to this band they make please to meet me Mm -hmm. it has the production values sure it has the hooks it has those incredible songs it doesn't sell why why did they never Breakthrough. Well, I think the book, in a way, is an effort throughout its many hundreds of pages to kind of explore that and understand that. And what I came away from it was that it wasn't any one factor. It wasn't just the fact that they didn't help themselves with their behavior and their antics and alienating people. Certainly, that that was one of the causes why things were more difficult. But um, you know, as you say, they had the critical respect, they had the adulation, they had the word of mouth. There was a point, certainly in their trajectory, around the time of Please to Meet Me, where it seemed like, yes, this is a band that's going to break big. Um, the American rock and roll market was was open for a band like that. Uh, I think ultimately into that void, you see other bands step in later, like Guns N' Roses and, and, and uh, other groups. But they did have their window. And I think what happened is 
When Pleased to Meet Me came out, the record company decided to choose The Ledge as the first single. It's a wonderful song, a powerful song. It was a song that maybe radio could understand. It was more like a classic rock blue oyster cult song than an alternative song. Um, But it was a song about teen suicide, and they, Replacements, had the very bad luck of releasing that right at a time where there was a um, series of these suicide packs and teen suicide events in America, and MTV got very skittish about playing the video. They pulled their support. Subsequently, radio pulled their support. So from the outset, that record, which had been set up as the breakthrough, had its legs cut out from under it. By the time they're done with that album cycle, the rules have changed. It's not just a gold album is good enough. R.E.M. has gone on to sell a million and have a pop hit. And so out of Please to Meet Me, now the pressure is ratcheted up and they go in to make Don't Tell a Soul, which was the kind of make or break album for them. And and I think by that point, you're talking about almost 10 years into the history of the group. Relationships are starting to fray. The dynamic has changed. Paul is writing different songs. So I guess that's a long way of saying timing. You know, timing is everything in, in the music business. You can have great songs. You can have great talent. But if you're not doing the right things at the right time, I think that's where careers get get made or lost. And in the replacements career, I think commercially at that time, certainly it was lost because of those factors, all of them. There's a great anecdote, too, about the relationship with the major label. You've got this kind of ad hoc family or gang, and they're hanging on by their teeth, and they've got a chance to do something big here in terms of having a finally a big corporation behind them. And Paul doesn't play the game. I think a very telling anecdote is the one you mentioned about the head of Warner Brothers. <laughs> Mo uh, Austin, yeah. This is around the time of Don't Tell a Soul, and you know, as kind of the leader of the band, he had to go and kiss the ring, as it were, of Mo Austin and say, hey, could you give our record a push? And and of course, Mo, having worked for Frank Sinatra for many years and being familiar with the culture of favors, uh, said, okay, well, on an unrelated matter, I have a favor to ask of you. Uh, would you play this uh, mall opening, uh, which turned out to be the Mall of America, or groundbreaking, I should say. <laughs> and so Paul was uncomfortable with that idea, and he said no. And of course, Tommy said, well, you know, we played worse places than malls. We played at Taco Bell once in, in the early days or something. Mm-hmm. But... Um, that's, you know, that's a little bit in miniature kind of the replacement story. It was about these fears, the fear of selling out, the fear of being judged, the fear of, you know, what will I become if I do this? Placement's career on the major labels in the latter half of their career played out exactly as it probably should have. 
they came up short and that kept them interesting and kept them pure for a big segment of their fan base and, and, and rock and roll fans. And I asked Paul one time, I was at his house, we were doing the course of the interviews, and I said, you know, what if you'd had a hit? What if I'll Be You had gotten a number two on the charts and, and you'd sold a million records? And even if that was it, what if you'd had the, been that proverbial one-hit wonder? And he said, well, you wouldn't be here right now. You know, I don't know if that's true, but it's quite possible that so much of, of, of the romance and intrigue of the replacements was tied up in, in the idea that they fell short. Feedback from a guitar that was thrown <laughs> on stage by a roadie. And roadies took over that at the last of that song. Band left the stage and the roadies took over. What a wild conclusion it was. But is it the conclusion? <laughs> Only the replacements know for sure. They're so unpredictable, though. Are they going to come back or...? Are they going to break up? Maybe they'll break up, and then they'll get back together, and then they'll come back. I believe they're not no, going to be back. No. So the band comes crashing to an end mm. on stage, appropriately enough, in Grant Park, one of the biggest crowds they'll play to. Yeah. You know, why did the replacements end? I think it was, you know, bands have a lifespan, and I think 10, 12 years for, for any band is a long time. For a band that doesn't reach those commercial heights and doesn't have the benefit of fame and money and, and the cushion that all that stuff gives you, it's very hard to sort of keep it going. And I think it was just inevitable that after 12 years together and, and eight albums that it would find its ultimate conclusion. If The Replacements had had that moment, you were saying, if they'd had a hit... You know, what What do you think, you know, because it's part of this great period in music that all led up to the alternative uh, era, sure. you know, paved the groundwork that made Nirvana and all the alternative stuff possible without ever reaping any of the benefits, you know. Right. Paul says something funny, you know, in the epilogue of the book. He says, you know, we were we were 10 years behind and five years ahead. And I think that's that's really true in a, in a, in a general sense. You can almost see the replacements being more successful 10 years earlier, fitting in with the faces and Mott the Hoople and Slade sure. and having a kind of success in that environment. And you can also see them being certainly having more success in a post-Nirvana alternative radio MTV world where alternative radio has more power and, and, and impact. Really, it's that question ultimately becomes a question of timing. They were 10 years behind, they were five years ahead, and they were stuck where they were, which is in the heart of the 80s. But despite that, they clearly had an impact on fans, other bands, uh, underground acclaim. When did you start to hear their influence in popular music? I think it was a few years later that you really saw the replacement's impact. And in a weird way... I don't think any one band has captured the replacement sound or identity, but I think a lot of different bands have taken a sliver of what Westerberg or the replacements do and become very successful with it. And I think it started in the mid-90s. You look at Green Day, who kind of took that template of Sorry Ma, you know, the melodic pop-punk stuff with a lot of smart words and putting that together, and they became very successful. Look at a band like the Goo Goo Dolls. They took the adult pop yeah. ballady side of Westerberg and and commercialized it and you know sort of heightened it and made it I think more uh, appealing to the masses. Even the moment me by, I still can't turn away. There's other bands like Wilco. You know Jeff Tweedy. You know he talked to me about seeing 
the replacements open up for X, having no idea who they were, and it sort of within seconds seeing Paul fall off the stage, and it completely changed his life. <laughs> and he wanted to learn, and ha- and how much of his songwriting sort of drew on that. Take the guitar player for a ride. See, he ain't never been satisfied. He thinks he owes some kind of. So I think a lot of bands in various levels with various levels of commercial success, all probably more commercially successful than the replacements, drew on these different sides of the replacements' personality. So I think the influence is there and it, and it is pervasive, but it's sort of spread out. So maybe it's not, you know, there isn't one band that sounds exactly like the replacements. We've been talking to Bob Mayer, the author of the definitive Replacements biography, Trouble Boys. Bob, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Now we want to hear from you. Did the Replacements change your life, too? Leave us a message on our answering machine. (laughs) 888-859-1800. When we get back, we'll review the new album from Solange, and we'll examine the 70s soul sample that drives Drake's big hit, Hotline Bling. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and it's time for us to do our sample platter segment. This is a segment that focuses on the sample basis for a current hit song. It's a lot of fun to do that. Absolutely. And this week we want to focus on uh, Drake. He's got a huge hit with uh, Hotline Bling. It came out last year. It is still selling. It is still on the charts. Five times platinum in July the United States. July 2015. It has not left the charts since. Huge hit for Drake. One of the biggest of his career so far. You used to call me on my cell phone Day night when you need my love Call me on my cell phone I don't think there's anybody who hasn't heard that song by this point. And uh, that little organ riff that is at the center of the song, that's the sample we want to focus on. Ever since I left the city. That is from a 1972 hit from Timmy Thomas. Timmy Thomas only had one major hit single, Why Can't We Live Together. Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why. Mm, Why can't we live together? Tell me why, tell me why. Mm, Why can't we live together? 
that organ part, that Lowry organ that he plays is central to the Drake hit of today. Who is Timmy Thomas? Based in the Midwest, moved to Florida, started playing this song or working on this song at a club in Florida. The audience loved it, and uh, they encouraged him to go make a recording of it. He dropped into the studio one day. He was basically a one-man band. He had, you know, a foot playing the bass. Uh, his left hand was playing the guitar. He was on the Lowry organ. Uh, there was a simple drum machine at the bass playing that cha-cha-cha rhythm. It needs to be emphasized <laughs> here how simple the rhythm machines were on those organs, right? Because there were like three or four buttons, and one was a waltz, right. and one said cha-cha on it, and that's what you got, you know, cha-cha-cha-cha. That's it. So his record company was saying to uh, Thomas, you know, we were thinking about uh, releasing this as a single and putting some more orchestration on it, but no, we really love uh, your demo. We're going to put the demo out as the single. Uh, It goes to number one. And I think part of the reason was not only that simple cha-cha-cha rhythm that's at the core of the song, the simplicity of that arrangement, but also the words that Timmy Thomas was saying. Uh, This was, of course, at the time of the Vietnam War, all the racial strife in America. Uh, His songs were like a healing balm, basically saying, you know, we don't need all this if we can just live together. It was a very Mm -hmm. simple but much needed message at a time of great complexity and strife in America. So the record comes out in 72, Greg. You're right. It owns the charts in 73. Two million copies sold. Where did Drake first hear it? You know, uh, deep in the hip-hop underground, uh, a rapper from Virginia named D-R-A-M had a very similar-sounding track called Cha-Cha. There's been some controversy about whether Drake was you know, ripping him off. But Drake samples Timmy Thomas, adds a little bit of electronic noise in the background that kind of mimics the uh, cell phone kind of sound. I mean, you know, the song in Drake's hand is about his cell phone ain't ringing by yet another girl who broke his heart. I think there's a great irony here in the Timmy Thomas, uh, very much in the model of like Marvin Gaye on what's going on, is singing about we need to come together, brothers and sisters, to, to solve the problems of the world. And Drake, of course, is singing about himself, right? The most <laughs> solipsistic man in the history of hip hop, which is really saying something. Ever since I left the city, you got a reputation for yourself now. Everybody knows and I feel left off. Girl, you got me down, you got me stressed off. Cause ever since I left the city, you... Yeah, I think the key here, Jim, is that that groove and that original arrangement was so sparse that it just lends itself. It's like a blank canvas. It's perfect for sampling. And I think uh, Drake rhythmically does something with it. I, I think one of the reasons that it's been such a huge hit is that there's been nothing like it in the charts rhythmically over the last year or two, and and this song sounds very different. But, you know, it illustrates how how a sample can be very effective as pure music. Mm -hmm. Then there's this other level of a sample uh, when the message also resonates in your current work. And I'm just saying, you know, message-wise, Drake couldn't be further apart from Timmy Thomas. Well, and I don't think that's uh, unusual at all. Samples have been used and recontextualized. I mean, that's the whole point, recontextualize. Uh, And I think that's what sampling does so effectively. 
you know, you are taking this particular piece of another song or another piece of music and putting it in a completely new context. And I don't think it's relevant whether it's uh, giving you the same message that that original song. In fact, I think kind of the point is, hey, I can do something new with this, create a new piece of art out of a piece of art that I admire from the past. Don't touch my hair When it's the feelings I wear Don't touch my soul When it's the rhythm I know Don't touch my crown They see the vision I've found Don't touch what's there You're listening to Sound Opinions. That is a little bit of the track Don't Touch My Hair by Solange from her third studio album A Seat at the Table. Um, Greg Solange, of course, is the younger sister of Beyonce Knowles. Been singing since she was five years old, making her debut at an amusement park. Did some time with various roles uh, supporting her sister's band, Destiny's Child. Has been out on her own for quite some time now, but this is only the third full studio album. We reviewed the True EP in 2013 and were really surprised at her artistic growth, turning for inspiration to the electronic and alternative rock underground. Now she has crafted an ambitious 21-song album produced by the neo-soul genius Raphael Sadiq and featuring some really interesting cameos. Let's play a song from it. This is Cranes in the Sky from A Seat at the Table by Solange on Sound Opinions. I tried to work it away But that just made me even sadder to keep myself busy I ran around in circles Think I make myself dizzy I slept it away I sexed it away I read it away 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 That is Cranes in the Sky from Solange, the new album, A Seat at the Table. A uh, singer, songwriter, producer. It's important to note that this is her vision. Even though there's some really high-profile collaborators on this record, uh, you mentioned Sadiq as a uh, producer on this record. There's Magical Clouds, there's Q-Tip, there's Tweet, there's Lil Wayne, Dirty Projectors, David Longstreth. But it is her vision. Yeah. Uh, she is a co-producer on every track. She's a songwriter on every track. Um, she's the singer... Uh, and her voice defines this record. Uh, it's a protest album, but it's a subtle one. You know, I think it's a great record. But when I say that, use that word, people are looking for a knockout punch. It's a lot more subtle than that. Mm-hmm. This is a soul record that's meant to be played after 2 a.m. This is one of those kind of records that is is dusky and, and has a vibe to it, but isn't going to knock you over the head. But her her voice is firm and, and declarative. I mean, these sentences are very striking to me. Uh, you know, don't touch my hair. Those lines contain multitudes. These, mm-hmm. these are centuries 
of how African Americans feel that they have been treated in this country uh, like they're the oddity, the other, the outsider. They're always made to feel like they're not welcome. Well, the very title, I don't have a seat at the table. Yes, uh, I'm weary of the ways of the world. Uh, This is a theme throughout the record, and okay, I'm exhausted about having to explain myself to people. Uh, I I, I get that because of the way, the, the beauty with which he invests these songs. It's not a complaint. These songs are beautifully done, beautifully arranged. Her voice is delicate and light. Uh, So there's beauty here, but there's also strength and also a determination, a resilience. Do you belong? Uh, She asks herself at the start of the record. It's a buy it record for me. Absolutely a buy it record, Greg. I'm sure the sisters hate being compared to one another, and I don't mean any disrespect. They're both extraordinary artists. Uh, You would have thought that Beyonce would have given us the I'm tired, I'm weary, why are we stuck in this place record, and that Solange would have been the one urging us to uh, revolt with her to the barricades. Instead, Beyonce is angrier than she's ever been uh, on Lemonade, and Solange is the one who's just weary and resigned. I can't believe we're still at this place after all these years. America can't we do better you know it's an emotional record uh, her mom steals the show there, there are vocal cameos from her mom and dad talking about racism in their life it really saddens me when we're not allowed to express that pride in being black and then and Master P runs through the whole record talking about how he seized the reins you know by starting his own company and uh, winning power and influence in the industry he winds up being uh, you know inspirational here. So I put all my CDs and cassettes in the back of my trunk and I hit every city, every hook. At the end of the day, although it's a sad record and a sleepy, kind of resigned record, there is hope as well. An extraordinary double buy it from both of us. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got one of the most talked about bands in rock today, Beatslang, with a special acoustic set. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Operator, oh, could you help me place this call? See the number on the matchbook is old and faded. New messages. Yes, hello. I have a comment about the Herb Albert program last week. My name is William Hansen. I live in Laurel, Montana. And I was in college 50 years ago during the early heyday, I guess you could say, of A&M Records. But my fond memory of, of Herb Albert is when I was a senior in college, I was renting a basement apartment with four other guys. And the older fellow who lived upstairs, uh, who owned the building, lived alone. And he drank pretty heavily on the weekends. And his habit was he loved Herb Alpert as well. And he would play his Herb Alpert LP records at 16 and two-thirds RPM. Yes, back in those days, you actually could buy a four-speed turntable, 16, 33, 45, and 78. So he'd put them on at a tremendously low speed. And uh, I guess he didn't have to get up that often to change the disc. Thank you.
that's my story, and it's a fond memory of good old Wilhelm, my landlord. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Sarah Major calling from Titusville, New Jersey, listening to the show with Herb Alpert and uh, the reminiscence of the Whipped Cream album. My father had that album, and I spent a lot of time staring at the cover of that album with a woman wrapped in whipped cream, trying to figure out how on earth they did that and how they made it stick in just the right places. Thanks for a great show, as always. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Jane from Connecticut. I love the interview with Herb Albert. It was like a who's who of artists and songs that have deeply touched my life at strategic points. I wanted to mention that Herb Albert's partner in A&M, Jerry Moss, owns the champion racehorse Zenyatta, who was named for the police album Zenyatta Mandata. When Zenyatta was inducted into Horse Racing's Hall of Fame this summer, Jerry Moss told how he bought her originally from an entity called Maverick Productions. He didn't know until later that Maverick was headed by a rival music man, Eric Kronfeld, who ran the Polygram label in the late 90s. Small world. Thanks so much. Love the show and will always love Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Hello, Jim and Greg. This is Alan from Chicago. I love the Barry Treasure shows, and I wanted to share one with you that I thought people might like. The album is called Davos, and it's by the band Computer Magic. Computer Magic is the work of a woman, Dan Johnson, who writes and performs and produces everything on the record. She has this kind of retro-futuristic sound, and you think early new wave artists like Gary Newman or early Ultravox. rock anthem that builds and builds with these sci-fi lyrics about losing your humanity, the corporate greed. The songwriting is really strong with smart personal lyrics. Uh, I just can't recommend it enough. Thanks, guys. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.